Not spring break yet. It's still February. It is the first sunny day in New York in about two weeks, though. I mean, spring break will be here before you know it. We were in Florida a couple weeks ago. It was bad weather, but you could feel the impending spring break coming down. How you feeling today? Feeling ready to pod? Oh, yeah. I'll be ready once I pop one of these coffee nicotine pouches. Yes. I don't want to promote this pouch anymore because it's now like the pouch of the Tucker Carlson people. No, they took it. This is what they took from us. Oh, no. So I do the punk brand called On. Oh, On. I've seen On before. There's also Rogue, which I guess is supposed to be Rogue like sucks. The, the redneck yeah, one. I don't never, do Rogue. Yeah, I never tried that. I, I'm, I'm yet to try the Cumtown brand, Lucy. I hit them up <laughs> to see if they would sponsor us, but they haven't replied. <laughs> you hit up Cumtown to see if they'd sponsor no, us? No, I hit up Lucy. Okay. Cumtown's still a, a thing? Band-based. I mean, you should, the YouTube show's very good. That's definitely yeah. worth seeing. I, I will I will check that out at some point. I don't really listen to podcasts. Or, All right. Or watch Hopefully, it. Jake doesn't get mad that I said that. He's going to get mad that you said that. I went to a gigantic family reunion last night out on Long Island, and oh boy, did we do it. So I'm feeling a little worse for wear, but I'm ready to buy. Oh, what, what were you drinking over there? Oh, we started out. It was at... <laughs> It was at an American Legion, so there was like cool, like two, a hardcore show. Yeah, there was like two eighty-five-year-old, you know, veteran bartenders, and there was shitty beer, and there was Jameson, you know, that whole thing. But we sang our drinking songs. It was like all my uncles in a room for the first time since like funerals years ago, and all almost all my cousins too. And yeah, we had a blast, but feel a little worse for wear oh that's nice we'll, we'll do okay though we got this we got some good news coming up today not good news but a, a good news episode that's right general strike 2055 it's get happening. ready mark your calendar <laughs> get a calendar that's Shit. 20 years in the future i'll be 75 i'll see you on the line <laughs> no it's not 2055 but it's what 2027 yeah, he. I guess uh, it's not that far in the future. Yeah, the idea was um, of Sean Fain, right? The idea was to start lining up, start lining up uh, contracts among all the various different private sector unions, so that they could all negotiate at once and all strike at once in the coming years. Finally, somebody, a later labor leader in the United States, taking workers' power, the power of the strike, seriously. But do you think that's just a strategy to? win more concessions when all the contracts come up at the same time it's oh yeah i mean how much is it really outside the realms of business unionism oh it's not super outside of it i think it's like a it's taking seriously strategy you know not just tactics because uaw obviously used great tactics to great effect uh, against the big three automakers last year but like in terms of an overarching strategy what the UAW is attempting to do, it seems, the leadership, is return to its historic role from the 1930s to the 1960s and 70s, I suppose, of being like the center, like the leadership of the industrial organized working class in this country and taking on like a political and centralizing role, uh, which is a good thing to have. You know, you certainly can't trust uh, Trumpka and the AFL-CIO to do that, so... Mm-hmm. It's positive. It's a positive development. You don't see part of that role as uh, suppressing working class self-activity? Oh, I mean, there's a dialectic there, comrade. that's true. You know, it's like the creation of working class subjectivity and its destruction at the same time. I just don't like um, the enthusiasm, like the strategy of like, let's have the contract expire at the same time. Obviously, that makes perfect sense. No problem with that. And the idea that he's talking about a general strike and actually saying like, this is going to be an old school general strike. Yeah. 
like look check out your history books or just yeah. like, oh, that's cool i appreciate that it's like putting it on the table in a way that labor leaders just have not but going back to the previous people who were calling for general strikes putting on the table occupy wall street and like yeah. associated radical muse they also had this tactic of like all right next may day general strike right and i think my lessons from doing that stuff is that it drains all of the spontaneity and all of the energy out of the moment. And sometimes that energy is going away anyway, or like not there. So it makes sense to have something to prepare for. But I have never seen those like gather on this date at this time. Yeah. Everybody is going to do it thing ever work. Well, you've got, you know, what happens in France. What happens Except for Occupy itself, which was that. That's true. Yeah, but that wasn't a labor action, right? That was like a, an occupation. No, I'm just talking but, about like political action manifesting. Yeah, like in France and, and Greece and even Germany and uh, to the extent that these things happen in the UK, there exists an organizational capacity, like an institutional capacity to have a general strike. And also, of course, too, like the legal right to do that at a certain time doesn't exist in the united states right now uh, i guess the attempt is to try to build that which can only ever be positive i mean multiple workers in multiple job sites multiple sectors all strike at once would i think be a huge realization of the latent power of the working class uh, in this country but the flip side of it of course too is that for all the tactical innovation we saw last year with these really exciting and extremely successful strikes that took the economic power of the strike seriously, right? That's what made them different is that instead of being a sort of pro forma, like we're going to strike a couple, we're going to strike the, all these plants at once uh, and you guys are going to like maybe lock out some other workers and then we'll sit here for a while and we'll use this for negotiations. Instead, you know, it went straight for their throats and straight for the profits, which was positive. The flip side of that, of course, and the flip side of the UAW's aspiration to reclaim leadership over you know what's left of the unions in the united states is that they came out the gate last week and endorsed biden right like super early i think the only ones who had endorsed him sooner were the uh ibw i think the electrical workers did like mm -hmm. a couple months ago and so like you're you're claiming in the economic realm like the business union realm um some sort of independence uh ability for independent action right and reviving the strike fain of course being very much like a bernie sanders type figure like looking back to the history of america and what worked for the working class in the past quote unquote and trying to apply it for today but that independence of course um endorsing joe biden for president does not extend into the political sphere and so this is going to be the inherent limitation of even a successful huge multi-industry general strike in in several years is that you're still you're you, if you remain tied to these party state structures of the democratic party and relying on uh the polit political backing of uh one particular party in the united states then an independent of course like independent working class political party is written out maybe you're a larger pressure group within the democratic party and you show that you have an independent lever that you can pull when it comes to economic and maybe in like a sideways sort of way political demands as well it's not obviously sufficient for us to like to to see and hope for like some independent political but that has to happen not in the offices of the uaw in detroit or 
you know, the leadership of various different groups within the umbrella of the AFL-CIO, that process as it played out, plays out would have to include people like us who, would, who are in the unions or outside of the unions pushing for that within this larger process of like gathering power. Yeah, and I think that's what we're going to be mostly talking about on the show today. Yeah, both the way the leadership of liberal progressive workerist institutions are responding to the, the crises as they unfold day by day, and then how the the people and the rank and file are responding to it and uh, the sort of balance of power within that. Um, and a lot of podcasts are talking about uh, the Taylor Swift stuff. This oh, week. yeah. But I, I want I, our listeners to know that that's a distraction. It seems like the most important political issue. Just for posterity's sake, people listening to this in a couple of years. And we're maybe. recording this before is, the Super Bowl. So uh, what is the Taylor Swift shit? I mean, even I need an update on this because I can't follow every pop culture slash political thing. That's Is it because she's dating like a famous football player now? Yeah. And conservatives are pissed off that she's like a Democratic Party psyop. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm and it, a familiar. lot of it hinges on what will happen at the Super Bowl after the Kansas City Chiefs hopefully win. Uh, uh, the, it, what What happens if the Chiefs win? This guy's on the Chiefs. Yeah, Travis Kelsey. Travis I know Kelsey. almost He's nothing like about football. Guy. He's not one of those elite tech worker football players from San Francisco on the 49ers. He's like a salt of the earth Cleveland Chiefs guy, right? Kansas City Chiefs. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah, I don't City, know anything Ohio. about. I don't. I don't really know much about him. I know very little about Taylor Swift either. But the psyop that uh, the conservatives are predicting is that the Chiefs will win through uh, you know the game being fixed. Oh, they're going to fix which it. I do believe happens from time to time in football. That's okay. And afterwards, uh, Kelsey will get on his knees and propose to Taylor Swift, and then Taylor Swift will say yes and. That sounds like a lovely uh, romantic I endorse story. President Biden okay. and Kamala Harris for president. All right. It sounds like a beautiful romance, to be so, honest. So, assuming that does happen. They've I created just, a soap opera in their heads that's really <laughs> sweet. <laughs> I want everyone to know this is a distraction from what's really going on, which is that Donald Trump is on trial. <laughs> and he increasingly believes he's going to be convicted and is going to run as a felon. Uh-huh. Like, uh, I think that's the real interesting political spectacle like that's you, happening in the United Eugene States. Eugene Debs brought back to life for the 21st century, running from a prison cell, sending yeah. out addresses to the American workers, fighting the oppression of the state. Right. You really you think that's going to happen? That could happen. I mean, I mean that's what Trump thinks is going to happen. Well, and it could point. happen. Yeah. I mean... He's under like so many felony indictments. At this but point. I do think that is like the biggest wild card in this election. And in a way, the entire crisis of legitimacy of the liberal world order, yeah. no matter how it goes, I'm not sure it'll have any effect. Like the best case scenario for Biden is he gets convicted. He tanks in the polls and Biden wins. Yeah. And then like, you know, liberal democracy is protected in the United States. As another it just four gets, years. Yeah. It just gets like worse and worse. Yeah. But if he if they lose this and Trump gets elected, it's over for liberal democracy. That's the end of that. This was their best attempt, maybe trying to ban the AFD in Germany. Yeah. It's like the best attempt for the liberal center to hold its political legitimacy in the West. Through lawfare, right? right? And through like the means of uh, mass media propaganda. And also, of course, pointing to the absolute stupidity of Trump and his various different crimes and misdemeanors. But yeah, I think I, I agree. They're kind of um, 
they're using uh, the same tactic they did in 2016, right? Which is to delegitimize him, even though he's already been. No, they're him. using the tactic of the carceral apparatus of the state. Yeah, but they did. But what I mean by that is they they put him under FBI surveillance in 2016, right? Yeah, maybe. I mean, they they, used they the had Russia like a report on to him like, to try to like to delegitimize him through like legal means. Yeah, I mean, that's just normal rat fucking. Yes, yeah. like normal like counter info. But this is like rat fucking two point oh. No, this, this is, is like, like this guy tried to overthrow democracy, and now we're going to put him in prison. Mm. Which, if you're a liberal, you should do. Like, you should be sure. in favor of that. Put that guy away. I mean, I'm sure. Like, I don't. I don't I don't come down like one way or the other on this entire thing because I think it's mostly a spectacle and I think that it's like very cynical. But if you look at the various things that he's charged with, not just the insurrection stuff, but all the various different things. I mean, he's guilty of something. They can easily. Oh, find he's a huge criminal. He's a huge criminal. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, as is a, Biden, as, as is everyone Biden. else. Like, don't get me wrong. He's a less subtle criminal. But than like, Biden. I think maybe my my interest in this, maybe it'll become more clear as we talk about like the real world events instead yeah. of spectacular world events I, I all i want to say is and there's not a lot to say about this right now but there's a lot of look to right now a lot to look to right now which is that uh the organizing campaign in the south to try to get all those runaway shops all those foreign uh, automakers has not only begun but it's also begun to seem like it's going to be successful you've got hundreds and thousands of people in um non-union car plants in Alabama and in Tennessee and Mercedes and Toyota and Volkswagen who are signing uh, card check or signing election cards uh, at a pretty good clip, like much greater than the last attempt years ago to try to do it. So in the course of this spectacular quadrennial event of American democracy, there's going to be something very important happening subterranean because it won't get too, too much coverage, but that is like an attempt to finally try to create some parity between the Union North for workers and the non-Union South, which, of course, as we know with Operation Dixie, was one of the great stumbling blocks of American organized labor coming in through the 20th century. So if that, if these inroads could be made, we're, as working-class militants, uh, we're all of a sudden in a completely different world. If True. Not only that, but it, it hurts a lot of the... Um America first strategy, both on like the right and the left side, because a big part of that is onshoring jobs yes. from Korea and China or whatever in the South. Yes. Building yeah. like Kia's and, and in the Georgia, Southwest. for example. And uh, chip plants in Arizona. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're going to talk a lot more about that and like other aspects of the ongoing class war against workers. But I do want to say up top. Yeah. We have a couple announcements. Yeah. Important announcements. First. Please subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Antifada. Yes. We have a ongoing promotion in the new year. We are sending out copies of the George Floyd Uprising, a Boom. collection of texts from the George Floyd Uprising written in the heat of the moment. It's a very exciting book. Really good in terms of theory and a history of the movement. And a historical and document you're going to want to hold on to. Definitely. And I will send that to you for free. Post is paid if you subscribe at the $10 annual level. So you pay for the whole year up front, you get a 16% discount on that. And then when you when once you have done that, just DM me your mailing address and I will send it to you. This month, I've already sent a bunch out last month, but we're, I think we're trying to lock you guys in for a year and we think you're going to be happy with it. You're yeah, be and uh, inside with us for and a year. 
if a year is too much of a commitment, uh, you could, uh, you know, sign up on any other level and uh, just let me know and I'll, I'll try to send you something else as oh, well. Yeah. Um, Shall I do the other big announcement? There's a, a, a second smaller a second announcement smaller for that, go, which go is that it. we have been streaming more on Twitch. We did our Settlers stream on Twitch and I've been streaming with my friend Jalian on Monday nights. So if you're listening to this on Monday, we will be streaming tonight. We'll be talking about cactuses. Hell yeah. Cabrillo of Cactus is cactuses. I learned oh, that. Man. And you're going to learn a lot more about cactuses if, if, you, if you check in tonight at twitch.tv slash the Antifada. If you are a pedant and you like to say cacti because you think it's appropriate because it goes back to the Latin or whatever, show up to the stream and mauled about it. Cope and cry and seethe about there it. There is Andy an appropriate time straight. to say cacti, but no, Jalian will okay. set you straight. Yeah, I, I too will await this important information for the stream. So check that one out. Third announcement. Yeah, let's go to the big announcement. The big announcement. We teased this. I mean, I teased this all through the holiday season, which was a crazy time for me and I'm sure for you and for Andy and everybody. We finally got our shit together. We got a space uh, for our meetup. So the announcement is that after uh, all the time trying to work out a space and work out a time and all that stuff, we are going to be set uh, by the end of February, early March. We'll, of course, send out all this information and let you know on the pod to have our big meetup. Uh, and it's going to be more than just hanging out, having coffee or beer or whatever and chilling. We're going to get people together. We're going to take some volunteers. And Andy and I are going to work on like a proposal and a document. Uh, I'm individually working on uh, like a theory statement on the thing. And we're going to start doing this thing. We're going to pull something together. And it's going to be really, really exciting. So we're hyped to invite you guys. It'll be in Ridgewood, Queens. So uh, make sure your calendar towards the end of that month is empty. You should quit your jobs by like the third week of February. This will be the end stop, of parasocialism as you know it. St- stop calling your mom. Stop calling your relatives. You're not going to need them anymore. You'll be picketing alongside us. Yeah, you'll be across with us, the city, across and the across city. the country. And if you're a, like a yearly subscriber, you're going to be inside the room with us. <laughs> you're going to be in the padded room with us for at least a no year. No subscription so. necessary. But yeah, we'll be we'll be having a meeting in Ridgewood uh, late February, early March. We'll let you know the date, but it is in the works. And it's happening. And it's going to be great. Hell yeah. So continuing on with our episode, where do we want to go next with this? I, I have in front of me right now, not just the the pouches that shall not be named, but a bunch of like newspaper clippings. I'm getting old school with it now. I get the newspaper and I'm like, oh, this yeah, this be is the most boomer about. thing I've ever seen you do. Uh, we are becoming boomers again, my friend. I, I am like going to get rid of my iPhone and we're going to like get back down to brass tacks. And what did, you, did you bring like scissors on the subway to cut these no, out? <laughs> I did this at home yesterday. My father came over and he was like, <laughs> we were chatting and I was cutting these articles out. Like, let's talk about the economy and shit. So, yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. What do we got? Yeah, I think first, you know, we were talking about the crisis of liberalism. And I think nowhere is it more obvious in Gaza and Ukraine. Yeah. Obviously, now Biden is starting to bomb Syria and Iraq. Yeah. In addition to Yemen. Mm -hmm. um, After three reserve troops, uh, engineers, I think. Yeah, they were working on like road maintenance. Were killed by a drone, which I mean, there's no I think there's no better sign of the reversal of u.s fortunes than oh, now boy. a drone killing u.s troops yeah not even u.s for, citizens by U- the u.s <laughs> right US, right uh, active duty well, for like 20 years we've been the droners yeah. and now fucking everyone's got them. who drones the droners i mean this is like one of the the big headline changes in military tactics that we've seen out of the um the, at least the war in uh in ukraine 
Um, have drones? Ha- there have been some drones in Gaza, right? There's there's been some attacks by both sides with drones, but drone warfare. I mean, oh boy, the last couple of years have really been a proof of concept. Well, Israel's that. for sure just has kill bots oh. in the sky. It's like really horrible, but that's. You know, it's the same stuff the U.S. has used. Yeah. They seem to rely more on, like, 2,000-pound bombs in refugee camps, I think. They, I, I, Yeah, they do both. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the the AI recogni- the facial recognition AI drones are oh, truly horrifying. God. But, yeah, this is obviously continuing to destabilize a situation that is making the sort of contours of the fracturing world order more and more obvious. The fact that not only is... Uh, Biden committing to expanding military operations throughout the Middle East, um, leading towards really the United States is like pushing towards escalation with Iran uh, very consciously. This isn't something like Biden is reluctantly going into. He had the, the chance to repair the damage of of the Trump years uh, by renegotiating the nuclear deal right. with Iran. And he elected not to. I think he said he was going to do it. But I, he elected not to. I think this isn't all just like U.S. or Biden's willpower. I think if you're the Iranian mullahs, you know, you're the ruling class of Iran, you, you're like, okay, we would renegotiate this thing, and then Trump's going to be back in office to tear it up again. So uh, the delegitimization is also of, like, the American will to even put, like, treaties on the table that can actually stand the test of time. But, yeah, I think Biden, I think, I think they, um, they chose to not spend a lot of political capital on trying to negotiate with Iran. Certainly. And I, yeah, I think it's points to the fact that Biden's liberal center is really tied to this, the Obama administration called the blob, this like elements of the, uh, of the Pentagon that is like hell bent on going to war with Iran. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think that there are elements within the blob that are, and I, I think, but I think there's elements that are, more cautious you know you could think of it as the split between like um neil ferguson and like john mearsheimer you know and like the foreign policy establishment there are like different views within uh the ruling class and their ideologues uh their intellectuals about which direction to go and just as like part of the part of what makes uh the map of the of the modern middle east so um so bizarre and as it turns out deadly is that you had a great battle within, say, like the imperial UK apparatus in the early 20th century between like Arabists and like pro-Zionists. And so the actual lines in the sand end up being drawn in a conflictual process. And I think that the United States, I think by and large, you're right, that there are these war plans by the blob, by the deep state, by the military apparatus, you want, whatever you want to call it, and many, many neoconservatives within that apparatus who are chomping at the bit, like the John Boltons of the world, chomping at the bit to start like a hot war against Iran. I think that there are also elements within the Biden administration who are rightfully scared shitless about the idea of getting into a hot war with Iran because, you know, not just of the chaos it would cause, but also the very real possibility that we'd get fucking washed like fucking washed by Iran and all of its missiles and rockets and proxy groups and all that shit. So yeah, you've got like the, the, the U S response took several days uh, to these uh, service people being killed. Uh, And then it seems as though with the Syrian strikes and the Iraqi strikes, there was a degree of telegraphing of these strikes to the Iranian uh, authorities. Like we're going to, we're going to hit, you know, the, and they pulled a lot of their, like um, Al-Quds Brigade. Is that 
No, no, they're what's the revolutionary brigade that they have? The ones that organize all the proxy groups. They pulled a lot of their leaders back to Iran mm-hmm. so they didn't get blown up in this whole thing. But like the revolutionary you, guard. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, uh, so you have like a cosmetic sort of um, de-escalatory escalation on the part of the United States because all the different actors in this region in like a game theory sort of way have uh, what the experts, and I'm not one of them, call an escalatory ladder where you start climbing up that ladder. There's like a tit-for-tat response. And everybody, it seems, from like the petty bourgeois mullahs of Iran to like the petty bourgeois blob members in the United States are hoping that this escalatory ladder can be climbed slowly and that eventually you could climb off the thing. But every day that the bombing and the genocide and the destruction of Gaza continues, you have the possibility that the whole ladder just collapses. Yeah, yeah. I guess that, that's sort of what I meant is that there, there, there does seem to be opportunities for the off-ramp, even from the, the blob perspective. And so obviously, like, we look at this and just say, like, well, Yemen will stop uh, attacking ships if, you know, uh, the United States calls for a ceasefire or, or, like, imposes a ceasefire or something. And obviously that's not going to be the prerogative of the blob, but they're, they're weighing other options. So there was an article in Axios this week on uh, uh, January 31st that says, some inside the Biden administration are now thinking recognition of a Palestinian state should possibly be the first step in negotiations Mm. rather than the last. You know, this is something they're thinking about, but that would be a big shift in foreign policy. And I think even them weighing that indicates how much pressure Biden is under from various places, um, including the blob itself. Yes. uh, Starting to get cold feet about this. Uh, In the UK, Foreign Minister David Cameron is also considering. Can't believe he's back. But recognition yeah. of Palestine as part of his plans uh, to end the for quote the day after the war in Gaza, whatever that means in 2025. And and the big shift here would be yeah recognition of the state, whatever that would mean. I'm not sure what they even have in mind for that in terms of borders and territory. And then most importantly, not blocking a UN Security Council resolution. Um, on Palestine, because pa- Palestine had been admitted as like an observer state right. since 2012, I think. Yeah. Um, but the the U.S. and the U.K. have always been there to veto it. Yeah. So this would be a major de-escalatory response. Yeah. And it that would put considerable pressure on Israel to uh, you know alter their tactics of just getting rid of all of the palestinians well this is where like the contradictions within this vital center uh, start to become really clear because you've got like the technocratic forward-thinking elements of the biden administration blob and the permanent government blob like let's be honest uh who are like well let's turn lemons into lemonade let's take this and finally push through to israel after we've bear hugged them and given them all the weapons they need to prosecute ethnic cleansing and collective punishment let's you know try to actually reshape like forward thinking reshape uh the entire peace process but what is their i wouldn't say client or proxy i guess i'll say ally because i don't believe that like israel runs the united states or vice versa But certainly like their ally Israel doing is they're making the essential preconditions for like national statehood of the of the actual people of Palestine literally impossible. And and they're doing that not like secondhand. They're doing that by destroying every element of 
Gazan society and as we're seeing to West Bank society that could constitute like a national body and a civil society and like a political program in order to like build like a developmental Palestinian state that is actually not contiguous is out the fucking door now. You can't obviously have a contiguous state, but one that like is recognizable as like a sovereign entity. America's ally is completely like working across purposes at that. Like, who are you going to have there? The Netanyahu won't accept Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. Hamas de facto has been like the quasi state actor in Gaza for 15 years. And you bombing all the universities and all like the government institutions in Gaza. Who's left? Do they hope that some like. The Palestinian Authority is, is who the U.S. wants. Yeah, but Netanyahu won't accept. I mean, maybe they'll be forced to accept it, but they well, have. Netanyahu will probably be out when the war is over. Again, whatever that means. But I don't think Gallant is going to accept but, it either. Uh, yeah, but the thing is, the, it's a big question mark about what a Palestinian, Palestinian state would mean. That is like the official policy of the United yeah. States. And the question is, basically, are they finally ready to get serious about this? Yeah in some way and what would it look like and um uh my initial reaction to that is like yeah what could it possibly look like um considering the state gaza has been in and is in now the state that the west bank is in like so dotted with these settlements that are tens or hundreds of thousands of settlers strong million settlers yeah I, i won't go into too much detail about this plan but i heard a really interesting proposal from Dahlia Scheinlin, who's a, a political scientist from Israel, on an interview with Parallax Views, which has been doing, it's another podcast that we've had on the show before, yeah. it's been doing a really good job of getting a lot of interesting voices on about the conflict. Um, and she proposes something like a federation of two states that are autonomous from one another politically, but also cooperative. And it's something that I had, I think, raised on the show a few months ago, which would be something like Bosnia mm-hmm. uh, and Herzegovina which is like a federation of, of three nationalities within the framework of one state um, where, I mean, it's mostly contiguous there, but it's not so simple as that. And uh, it would be, I don't know, like a pretty radical departure from how Palestine has been talking about before. I think this is just like this one woman's idea and she doesn't have any political power, but the point is there is a kind of a liberal democratic or like rules-based international order type framework for extracting ourselves from this. Yeah. And the question is with like everything we're talking about on the show today is like, does the order have the juice to go forward with it? Mm. Or are they just going to continue holding up their hands to like reactionary strongmen like Netanyahu and Trump and the AFD and Maloney and And all these people and just like increasingly Zelensky as well and Putin and And just let them have have the world for themselves, let them continue in their, their military operations, or is there going to be like an actual pushback with an actual solution? Yeah. I mean, there's what particular actors within politics in the state want to do. And then there's of course, what's actually possible. Um, I think we could all come up with some great ideas. The idea of like the, the federated like liberal state goes back to like the, the 19 teens and the 1920s. And it was actually the proposal of uh, the Sephardic Jews in the area because, you know, before you had the movement of people to mandatory Palestine, a lot of Jewish pre-refugees and then refugees, you had the Sephardic Jews who had lived there for centuries and they were trying to act as a mediating body and they were, many of them, their leaders anyways, were pushing for understanding between 
the Jew, like the European Jewish settlers coming in and the existing uh, Arab, Christian, and Muslim populations, they, of course, were swamped by events in the 1930s and the 1940s. But the idea of a federated thing, you know, I guess if you were uh, to argue against it, you'd say like that's kind of what they tried to do with power sharing in Lebanon, and that didn't really work out. But then again, a lot of the impetus for Lebanon falling apart was Israeli aggression, right? So I, I think you're right. I think that like even within the rules-based international order, within like the political realism of the time, there are actual solutions to this, um, and I think ones that like approximate the closest that bourgeois justice can get for a, a people who have been oppressed and subjugated and hyper exploited and bombed and killed and ethnically cleansed um whether the rules-based international order whether the vital center has the juice for that because the juice for that doesn't just require political will but it also requires using political power and i think that above all the united states which is, as Varn pointed out in a recent episode, which is kind of in Hadrian's wall mode right now, kind of pulling back um, its power from from large parts of the Middle East and Africa and elsewhere. Um, you know, do they have the ability to make other ruling classes and political actors like, say, the Netanyahu psychotic, like, Kahanist regime uh, do what they want them to do and force like a, a two-state or a whatever-state solution down their throats, I'm not sure they have that juice anymore. I don't think they have the military power to push that forward, and I don't think they have the political will because I think that it's damage control mode right now. All across the globe, it's damage control. It's unclear to me if, if they can do it, even if they did have the political will. I agree with you on that. Um, and just before we put a cap on uh, on on Israel and Palestine, um on the last episode of Diving Into the Wreckage, the second half of it, which uh, maybe some listeners didn't hear because it's on the, the Patreon, did a really amazing job of, of talking both about that conflict and also, uh, like, Varn really put well my thoughts about mm. the protest movement here in the United States and the reasons for us to engage in it as communists, mm. um, even though what we're talking about right now is, like, very far from a communist solution. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that was really good. So I encourage people to, to listen to that if you haven't, um, as much as we want to propose like communist solutions to these issues, all of them, we're in a position right now where we need to at least face political reality. And the political reality is that whatever solution comes out of this is going to be like a rules-based international order one. And a well, it, one. I, what we're really talking about is like our Palestinians going to have any political agency in their future. Right. Or are they one way or another going to continue to be non people? Yeah. And as we move into the Ukraine discussion, which I think dovetails nicely with this too, we need to, I think, start to open up our conceptual frameworks um, away from seeing things in like methodologically nationalist terms and instead understand them in sort of like system totality terms. And one example of that, that probably sounds really abstract is like when we look at Israel and Palestine, right? It's easy to see these as like a, a nation state and like an aspirational one, like two separate bodies. But if you look at the history of the region of the, over the last hundred let alone hundreds of years, right? But certainly over the last like 50 or 60 years, it's, I think, adequate and maybe useful to understand them as already being a one state situation, right? It's just the state being bifurcated 
uh, an, an apartheid state being broken up into people who have rights and people who don't. Mm -hmm. And we can take that same level of analysis where we break out of the sort of confines of understanding like methodological nationalist uh, existence to also look at Ukraine and Russia and also look at the United States and China and also look at Russia and China, look at Africa and South America and understand that as much as the particular moment that we're in right now takes the form of appearance of like a battle over unipolarity versus multipolarity or like the collective West versus the rising bricks or uh, various different like ideological battles between authoritarianism versus democracy or whatever. It's also adequate. And I think useful to look and understand that these are all part of like a, what, what is a global capitalist super state where these particular ruling classes are breaking into civil war with one another that looks like ethnic conflict that looks like national conflict which looks like a you know like a standard 20th century um you know industrialized war situation but really all of these different ruling classes whether it's in putin's russia whether it's in netanyahu's israel and they have a lot in common by the way the two are run oh, very very similarly uh, uh or the united states and china understanding that this takes the form of one form of appearance but that part of the reality is that it's a civil war within the global international capitalist order right with with like regional variations on the ground and then like the the veneer of states uh sort of breaking down in terms of like well where does the state begin and end who's incorporated yeah. in the state what is what does it mean to be a nationality within or without the state? Does, because does, yeah. as much as we want to say it's like this is a one state issue because of the occupied territories, there's uh, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians living in Syria and Jordan in, and Egypt, in Michigan, um, who want to return. And right. like, yeah, the the defunding of of UNRWA is a, a big part of uh, you know the the retrograde process yeah. of of removing the right of return or any like semblance of that. Yeah. But yeah, let's, let's and move on la to Ukraine. Lastly, I would just okay. say on this thing, and we can touch on again, this, when it comes to Ukraine, a question that we should ask is like, do the borders of the United States end at the door of the IMF? You know, do they end at the doors, uh, at the door of um, the swift banking system or the, the bank of international settlements, right? Like there are these sinews and these institutions and these regulatory bodies, which um, pattern, capitalist accumulation and the accumulation of capitalist power all over the globe and those affect still and we'll talk about the sanctions regime russia in ways that and places like china in ways that uh we should understand like the deep interconnection between them but anyways let's move on uh sure so ukraine um you know this was another example of like an opportunity for the rules-based west to assert itself by making sure Ukraine wins the war. Yes. And uh, as much as there's been a ton of support, military and otherwise, to Ukraine, um, many have seen it as simply not enough for them to win. Mm. Uh, we're saying this even when Ukraine was doing somewhat well a year ago in terms of defense and taking back some territory. Mm. Uh, but a year later... Ukraine looks completely fucked in a number of ways. Doomed. The yeah. most the the most doom thing I've heard about this conflict so far is that Russia is just pumping out artillery. Oh my god! Yeah. And their strategy has just been like hold the line, 
blast the line with artillery every single day. And the United States is not making nearly enough artillery, even if they continue to be able to supply uh, as much weapons as they want to Ukraine, the United States can't make enough artillery to, to answer this. In the 1990s, you know, the, all, the U.S. military industrial complex, which was built to fight a Cold War, which included things like artillery and tank production, uh, I, think, I believe it was under the Clinton administration taking the, their cues from the end of the George H.W. Bush administration, sat down with like American military industrial producers, of which there were many, and they were relatively centralized uh, and you know had a large productive capacity and said, you guys have to all, like half of you guys have to disappear and get bought up by the other guys. And uh, also, too, we're going to completely rejigger this entire operation so that it's lean and mean, it's Toyotaized, uh, it's decentralized, or it's going to remain profit-driven, but it's going to pre- create like high-tech weaponry. It's going to produce over-engineered weaponry. It's going to produce stuff that creates a lot of value for the shareholders of your company. Yeah, artillery. But, what is that? World War One? Right, what are you talking exactly. about here? Yeah, we'll never need Who that needs that anymore? Because, Have some tanks. <laughs> yeah, because the preponderance of American power then is, then is now, and we saw this in the various Iraq wars and Afghanistan, is you know still to some extent naval power to patrol the seas and make sure commodities can keep moving around but it's air power you know what i mean it's precision guided missiles it's stealth airplanes in order to do like policing operations or like punitive operations on slobodan milosevic mm-hmm. or on um momar Gaddafi's regime and so despite all of like the the fractures and the weakness within the russian economy they retained like a relatively centralized post-soviet industrial base which they were able to very quickly ramp up because it still existed Mm -hmm. whereas the united states and europe have been this sort of post-industrial post-cold war like policing operation uh artillery producing like one-tenth the amount of russia on a good year uh and it doesn't even seem to be ramping up right now all that much which leads leads you to wonder like do they even really give a shit about what happens to ukraine at this point why aren't (laughs) we living in a war economy right now why aren't we what's going on could be if they were serious about this shit dark brandon you, where are you you and me would be working in, <laughs> on, the, on the they'd knock down all those yeah. fucking luxury high-rises and they put up a giant artillery we go we go factory. back to the, the brooklyn navy yards yeah. not to get homebrewed kombucha <laughs> but to make artillery to, to make, pack artillery shells yeah uh, on one of the three shifts that <laughs> they have in russia right now they're running uh, on three shifts like that so yeah like just from the industrial capacity argument Russia just surpassed in uh, purchasing power parity uh, the economy of Germany. Now, I'm not one to tell you that military Keynesianism is uh, sustainable. <laughs> and I'm not one to say that, um, you know, this is going to end particularly well for Russian capitalism. This, you know, taking upon like one third of state expenditures for military means. Israel tried that in the 60s and look what it did to them. Uh, what I am saying is that for the duration of this war, which, which is to say, because it's a war for democracy right in Ukraine, the duration of the war up to November 4th, 2024, that's as long as this war has to last. Once the election's over, once we have democracy in the United States, no matter how many tens or hundreds of thousands of people die between now and then in this battle for democracy, we're going to pretend that like these Ukrainian soldiers have a fighting chance against like 
a 20 to one artillery barrage. Yeah. Uh, or, and, and the fact that uh, they don't even have the political power to, to call up a half million new Ukrainian conscripts who may not even even exist. Although Where, the, whereas the, Russia has gotten 480,000 over the last six months or so. Yeah. I mean, obviously Russia has always had like a way larger pool of meat to throw yeah. into the grinder and, and Ukraine's running out like the, the number of uh, amputees in Ukraine has um, exceeded like, like, the UK in the course of World War One. Oh my god! In a very short period of time, it's horrific. Horrific stuff. Um, and Dude. it's not. Yeah, it's not looking like it's going to get any better. The the madness of this entire thing, and again to show the delegitimization of the rules based international order, is that if you look at the first few months of the war or the special military operation as it began, it's of course similar to World War One, where Ludendorff and Hindenburg start world war one with certain war aims but the military apparatus becomes radicalized into total war and uh total victory similar to that in russia now we're seeing the end game but what the beginning game of this war was was that it seems as though and i'm not making any excuses that the goal of this uh special military operation was to force them to uh, force the united states to the negotiating table to figure out a new security architecture for eastern europe right um, and while there was a peace proposal on the table that was tentatively signed by the Ukrainians in the United States or the Ukrainians and the Russians, Boris Johnson flies in and, and vetoes the entire thing because the United States and the collective West thought they still had the juice to create a sanctions regime that was going to destroy the Russian economy. They bet yeah, big that was on that. And we, fail. I thought... I think for like casual observers looked at that and like, yeah, if the full bearing of like the collective West's financial and economic sanctions falls upon this like very interconnected link within the global economy, they're going to complete, but they didn't. Well, what does also, that even mean? the U S messed it up by basically letting us like, uh, tech producers and, and arms producers just, you know, sell to India that sells to Russia. Right. Yeah. They, so, so yeah. again, it's like, if the U.S. wanted to, they could have gone full hog here. They could have blockaded them and embargoed them, but then you would have had a nuclear war. Because, again, they're on Right, this, I mean, and, yeah. and so, like, yeah, obviously, it's it's probably, I don't know, I don't want to say if it's better that they didn't, yeah. but in their stated aims, they did not go far enough. They no. did not supply Ukraine with the right kinds of weapons that they needed, and they did not uh, engage in this economic blockade of Russia in a... A, a real way i mean the getting them out of swift um i mean i that they i i understand how that was system. like something <laughs> like a nuclear option at the yeah. time but they russia got around it and now now economists are saying like russia's not in a depression but their economy is overheating right yeah the opposite <laughs> yeah yeah no like um what does it and this is an open question because I don't really have answers. I have some guesses to this and you probably do too and listeners do at home too. But I think that moment, and I think it was what, March 2022, when they veto the peace proposals and the sanction regime comes down and within a couple months fails, that's going to be an important moment historically looking back about uh, the limitations of uh, the, 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 the rules-based international order's actual power you know, to to affect things in a way that furthers their interest. I think that that's a big open question. Why is it that they thought that they could win the war that way, but they couldn't? 
what is it about not just their lack of political willpower to go all the way, but like they thought that they could pull this lever and it would work and it didn't. Right. What does that say about the balance of like forces within the world? What does it say about the decline of Western and American power? What does it say about um, the kind of like teetering and tottering unipolar moment that seems to be falling away right now? They believe their own fucking hype. They really thought they could do it and they couldn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, like I said, it, it was a nuclear option. The, the sanctions on Russia and it's, you know, it's as if you nuked Moscow and it didn't affect <laughs> yeah. or, you know, just like the Eastern Front of World War Two. It's like as if you've successfully uh, invaded Russian territory and blockaded the major cities. And, and they're just oh, like, wow, what? Russia just has more troops to send. In. Right, right. Now the Red Army's coming. Yeah, Stalin's us. back. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. So maybe we'll leave it there for the paywall. Yeah, uh, sure. And we'll talk more about what this multipolar world is, is looking like. We're going to talk about Russia taking leadership of bricks we'll talk uh, about uh the zelensky and zeluzhny uh oh yeah we gotta cover that first that's and, a lot about internal politics of that era. and then also the ec- economic spiral of china and europe yeah that that's an important one too i i, I threw off a little tweet where so, i think it was paul krugman was like what happened to the u.s recession we we're supposed to have a recession and i was just like ah, it was exported to china and europe <laughs> yeah, and then a, a bunch point. of like neo-libs got really mad in my replies like i was talking about it was like a conspiracy theory but like that's literally what happened so we'll we'll talk about that Definitely. on the other side all right patreon.com slash the antifada sign up for a year for that book and stay tuned for announcements of the new revolutionary organization <laughs> it's coming folks it's coming i find it dizzying, bringing up my history.